Welcome to the Pencils and Lipstick Podcast, a weekly podcast for writers. Grab a cup of coffee, perhaps some paper and pen, and enjoy an interview with an author, a chat with a writing tool creator, perhaps a conversation with an editor or other publishing expert, as well as Kat's thoughts on writing and her own creative journey. You'll laugh, you'll cry, well, hopefully not actually cry, but you will probably learn something. And I hope you'll be inspired to write because as I always say, you have a story, you should write it down. This is Pencils and Lipstick. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 131st podcast episode of the Pencils and Lipstick podcast. I'm Kat Caldwell. Today it is May 14th. It is 5 p.m. where I am (laughs) and it's raining. So there, you got a whole update. We are going to have an interview today with first-time memoirist Kirsten Micklewaite. Um, It's interesting to talk to memoirists because I find it brave. And, you know, especially it being the first book, creative nonfiction is a whole different beast, right? And when you were writing memoir in which it's based on your life, other people have shared that life with you. And so they have opinions about that life, right? And people these days give opinions freely. And so we talk a little bit about what that was like for Kirsten. Um, she has kids, she has family, of course, um, what it was like to even just get through the writing part where sort of that imposter syndrome of that struggle of, should I even write this? Is it even worth it? So we talk about that as well. And just, you know, learning how to write a memoir that does justice to your life and to the other person or other people around you, how she got comfortable enough or where she learned that. So stick around to listen to that interview. I think that you'll enjoy it. And of course, all the links are in the show notes below to find Kirsten Micklewaite's book, The Ghost Marriage, and to find her on her website as well. So as I said, it is raining. We've been running around for volleyball (laughs) all day long three kids, school year is coming to an end, right? Projects, volleyball. I have decided to take the weekend to go back and just read over what I have. I don't know about you guys, but I'm really driven by words on the page. Of course, I talk about this a lot. Um, How many words I've written, how far I am in the book. But I don't know if it's just the time of year or what I'm doing but I'm having a hard time concentrating and keeping my mind focused on one story. And the thing that happens with that is then you kind of lose track of where you are in the story, even though you were just writing it. Maybe that's just me. So, you know, I'll write a chapter and then I'll sort of just, I don't know, keep going on. And I've gotten about halfway through and I just decided, you know what, it's time to go back to the beginning and reread it to make sure I'm where I think I am in this story. I I have like written a lot of backstory that probably won't get into the book, but I've spent some time working on the characters since I got back from London, on the backstory, on the story of myth, the, the main character's misbelief and how he grew up and who he is and how I want that to sort of come through. And this 
this week I've kind of realized I need to dig deeper in to the mom and really decide what makes her tick and what she is going to end up doing at the end of the book because she has several choices. Um, however, she sort of decides to be at the end of the book and what she decides to do at the end of the book is going to influence who and how she is before that, you know? I don't want even a a secondary character to just sort of change out of the blue. So I realize, you know, I really need to decide, is she going to be that character that doesn't change and that the the reader's like, oh yes, (laughs) here's that family member that you wish would change, that you wish would see the light in certain things and they just don't get it. Or is she going to change? And even though the book's not necessarily about her, we can all change, right? We're all constantly changing. So I have to make that decision. And in the meantime of making that decision, uh, I just decided to go back and read. Now, I can't remember who it was, but I was listening to an interview. It was a male author. And so I honestly, it wasn't somebody that I had interviewed, but they had said that they actually write five chapters about, and then they go back and read from the beginning and then they outline. So they don't outline before they write, but they outline afterwards and, you know, outline as they're reading. And so actually last night I just started reading, but today I was thinking that's probably a better idea just because I read something I was about, I don't know, about three chapters in, probably on the third chapter. And um, I read something and I thought, oh, did I say something about this in the the first chapter? Or is that sort of in my head as backstory? I better, you know, I I need to keep this timeline straight. And I think that that's a really great advice. If you're a little bit more of a pantser, um, you don't outline everything, you know, down to the last, you know, (laughs) period to, to go back and outline afterwards, because it will help you keep your timeline straight, especially for the, the secondary characters. You know, what What have they been doing? How did they react to this person before? Why are they reacting like this now? Uh, one of the secondary characters, I had sort of acting kind to this person in one, one chapter. And then in the next chapter, they were like, oh, they're so annoying. And I was like, okay, you, you, you can't be like that. You can't like change. So clearly my mood of that day wanted that secondary <laughs> character or something to reflect it. I don't know something happens. Um, so I am going to again, go back and reread and I am not editing while I read, not unless it's something really glaring. You know, I, I saw that I had two names that started with W. So I changed one of the names where it's a name that doesn't matter. You know, it's a name brought up in passing, but I'm really trying not to edit. I'm just trying to read and make sure that, that my characters are going the same way. So there is, you know, advice or whatever you want to take it for. If you're a few chapters into a book, you might consider going back and reading and also jotting down notes, you know, like outlining that chapter so that you can tell what the timeline is and you can then keep notes of where characters are and what, you know, what's going down in the story. So that is where I am. Actually, I am also working on sort of the the middle of the book 
And I'm also thinking about the middle of the book for my historical fiction, because as a pantser, you sometimes know where characters are going to, but I really want that middle point to get to. Uh, I know all these things that, that need to happen, but I, I just have a really hard time plotting them out on a graph, you know? So I've written out a couple different middle scenes. What will be the middle scene? Will it be when the brothers meet? Will it be when um, there's the fight? Will it be when he confronts his mom? And then, you know, and so I have to sort of decide at that point. And to be fair, you know, this isn't going to waste, even if they don't get into the middle, middle, all of those scenes will be part of the book. And so I don't really consider it you know, wasted words, I guess, but we, we can be a bit dramatic about it as writers. So just having fun with that and I realizing the historical fiction, of course, it's a little bit more romantic. And so the realization is really more about the love that the person has for the other person. And so I'm just trying with that one, I'm not writing it as much as I'm writing out ideas, writing out different scene ideas what the scene would have in it, what that would need before, like what it would need, what it would need to have happen before that. And um, the, that I think I talked about it last week, but it's a little complicated with her, you know, struggling with vision disability and two different countries. And so, you know, what needs to line up for that to happen? And therefore, that will help me also make sure that all those those little things happen before we get to that middle scene. So a little bit of a different way of, of getting things out. And I think um, when I think back to the first book, Stepping Across the Desert, the reason that there was so much that I had to cut and edit out and all that, quite a few scenes were redundant. And I think that can happen a lot when you're sort of struggling to get to a spot in the book. So I'm trying to avoid that. I mean, and it's not, you know, it can happen, but I really think that it's much more fun to write backstory or write notes and scenes sort of notes on what needs to happen and sort of writing out a full scene. Now a full scene can be fun in itself and just sort of be extra. But um, what I'm trying to avoid the idea was to try to avoid overwriting and then deleting. And what's interesting is, in a sense, I'm still overwriting. I, I have probably seven scenes from when my protagonist was a kid, and they probably won't get into the book as scenes, right? They're going to get into the book as sort of references to the past so that the reader understands what happened in the past. But these are full scenes that I've written to sort of get to know my protagonist better. But they're actually quite fun to write. They're actually quite quick to write as well. And I think that they're going to make for some fun reader gifts when the book comes out. So in a sense, still overwriting, but in another sense, in a good way, because it'll be something new for the reader to, to read it won't be just a redundant scene, right? And it will, I think that it will make more sense every time he refers back to his 
his childhood because I understand it better. I think I'll then be able to have him express it a little bit better um, as he is living out his life now at 27. So we're going to keep trucking along with that. It is still May. It is only May 14th. We're halfway through and the creative writing community is open. We have a couple new members, which I'm very excited about. We're all very excited about. Um, we keep having 20 hours of sprints a week, which, you know, adds to that pretty easy to get things written <laughs> sort of thing. I think as people are getting back to, to working full-time and out of the house, uh, I know everyone's working full-time, but working out of the house, maybe you've changed jobs, maybe as school and work changes, every time there's a change, you know, it flips our routines on, on their heads. But you might consider joining a sprint and seeing what it's like because it is a set time of day in which you can tell people, oh, this is my writing time. And because you're joining other people, something happens psychologically in which you, you feel brave enough to tell people, leave me alone. This is my writing time. Like it's an actual meeting thing, you know, and other people are going to be there. I don't know about you, but I have been there in which I say, oh, well, I'm going to go write. And I love my family, but they didn't always take it that seriously, right? Because you're just sort of staring at a computer <laughs> waiting for scenes to come to your head sometimes. But, you know, you might consider coming in and just trying it. You get two weeks for free. That is 40 hours of sprints. That is two marketing sprints. You might hit it on the head with some experts. You get to meet the group. Um, see what's going on, uh, chat with us, see what's coming up. We have some really great people coming into the group. Um, we're going to talk about graphics and newsletters, and we're going to do book blurbs, and we have some writing times in which we're sort of going to do like a meditative writing time in August, some mindset. We're doing a lot of stuff. Branding. What's up on for the rest of the next year. Yeah. And scene writing um, with Jay Thorne with the three-story method and scene writing with Emma Desi. So we, we try to bring in people who, lots of different people, right? Because you're not always going to, I don't know, mesh with that person's method. You might like somebody else's method better and you might learn something different, right? So we bring in different people, different editors so that you know, they do sort of the same thing, but you might like their method better or learn better from them. You might like their editing better. You get it, right? So that is still open. The, the community is still open to be joined, I guess, for the next two weeks. The sprinting membership as well. So the, the full creative writing membership is $47 a month. If you pay for six months in advance, you only pay for five months. But the Sprint membership, if you don't really want the marketing and you don't want the experts and you just want time to write. So for 20 hours a week, that's 80 hours a month, um, you have access to all the sprints for just 35. So you can check all of that out at catcaldwell.com. And before we get into the interview, if you would be so kind as to share this podcast and like it and subscribe on whatever app you're using to listen to it, it really helps out the podcast. It helps people find it. We have some great people over in the United Arab Emirates listening, which is awesome. So hello to you. 
and she was sweet enough to write a review. So I got to see that somebody's listening there. That's really fun to see, but it, it helps the podcast be seen by others, listened to by others. That helps the guests who come on be discovered by other readers and other writers as well. So we're just sort of helping each other. That is the whole point, um, this collaboration as authors, indie authors, writers, creatives. Um, so now we are going to get into the interview. Oh, if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash pencils underscore lipstick. You can become a patron. There's also a link in the show notes if you just want to buy me a coffee. So we are going to get into the interview now with Kirsten Micklewaite. Kirsten Micklewaite is a professional copywriter and editor by day and a writer of fiction and creative nonfiction by night. She's an alumna of the Squaw Valley Community of Writers, the Napa Valley Writers Conference, the Paris Writers Conference, and the San Francisco Writers Conference. Her short story, Parting with Nina, won first prize in the Ledges 2004 Fiction Awards competition. She lives in the San Francisco Bay Area, where she's at work on a new novel. The Ghost Marriage is Kirsten's first memoir. The book tells her story of spiritual connection and surviving divorce after 50. You can find Kirsten at kirstenmicklewaite.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another show of the Pencils and Lipstick podcast. Today, I have with me a memoir writer, Kirsten Micklewaite. Hello, Kirsten. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have you on. I've had a few memoir writers, but that's so different from fiction that I love having you guys on to talk about the differences. Um, so we'll get into that in a little bit. Can you just tell us a little bit of where you're at, where you're from? Introduce us a little to yourself. Sure. I grew up in um, Northern California, where I currently live. I was an English major at UC Berkeley, and that sort of kicked me into a career as a writer and editor and publicist mm -hmm. type person. One way or another, I've always been able to use my writing in, in some fashion in my career. And the book, The Ghost Marriage, is set in the Napa Valley where I lived for 20 years, mm -hmm. but I am now back in the Bay Area and back working at UC Berkeley as my day job. Oh, fine. So you are mm -hmm. the Californian that doesn't want to leave California. I know a few of those. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe I should, like maybe when I retire, I'll go try someplace else, but it's such a great state. Yeah, it's pretty good. You guys have everything. I know <laughs> that it's like, you have the water, you have the mountains, you can go get snow, you can go get, it's unbelievable. It's such a great place. Thank you. Yeah, I, I knew... <laughs> I, I've traveled a lot. So I lived in San Diego, 2003, 2004, mm -hmm. and I loved it. It was so great, but my money ran out. So <laughs> That's the thing. It is obscenely expensive here. So, um, you know, once I'm not making a regular salary, I may be looking at other more affordable areas. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Although I can't say DC area is affordable. So I got that in lots of places. Let's talk. Um, so you've always sort of been writing. So you studied writing. I would assume that you're a reader. You like reading. You like the written word, things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that just occurred to me recently is that 
I came out of college with an English degree with honors. I, you know, I loved reading. I loved writing about reading. And it never occurred to me that I should try to be that kind of a writer myself. And I don't know why. I wish that I'd had more confidence in myself as a younger person and gone on to get an MFA, you know, while I was still, you know, young enough and my life was still malleable enough. Yeah. Um, But instead, I was just really grateful to find job after job where I could use my my writing skills and that I could actually put my degree to work that way. Yeah. But it wasn't until right after Y2K Mm -hmm. when we took the new went to the 21st century and um I had been doing the writer's way uh workbook by Julia Cameron and you know all through the workbook I there were stories of people who had been like CPAs and then they became screenwriters or whatever and I still just felt like there was that chasm between me and that kind of writing life okay but sure enough I came back we went away for the New Year's holiday. And I came back and this idea for this incredibly ambitious novel literally came out of the sky and presented it to me on a silver platter. I perhaps read Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert, but she talks about that, how it's just showing up and, you know, the ideas, the inspiration will come to you. You just have to do your part and show up. And so for the first time, I'd never even written a short story before. And I sat down and spent probably four or five years writing this historical sort of, um, oh, I forget the literary term, but, you know, it had a little bit of the paranormal in it. It Mm -hmm. had to do with reincarnation uh, set in five or six different historical periods. Oh, wow. And um, I just went from zero to 60 to writing this really ambitious novel and I got an agent for it. She was never able to sell it. And so then I was starting on a second novel when the life events that I, uh, that I describe in the ghost marriage started happening yeah. and my life just started falling apart and I didn't have much time to devote right. to novel writing anymore. Yeah. That makes, that makes complete sense um, because writing takes a lot of energy Mm -hmm. Takes a lot of work. And I can't imagine like, you know, having spent five years and this agent's trying to sell it and it, you're just waiting. I mean, this is what, 2005, six, like you, you're still Mm -hmm. not supposed to self-publish around that time. That was a big no, no. (laughs) So you just have to sort of wait in limbo. And then, yeah, if life happens, you're like, why, why would I put this as priority when it's not, not going to bring anything in the moment? And just, yeah, in those days, I was worried about finding, having a place to live, right. basically. You know, we went from this very lavish lifestyle to me wondering if we were going to be out on the street. So, yeah, yeah, novel writing was not a big priority. <laughs> it's not a big priority at that point. <laughs> like, yeah. So writing memoir, I think, mm-hmm. is a really courageous thing to do. I'm in a couple different groups, which we do nonfiction. and. There's something about nonfiction, you know, you write about, you know, you can be David Sedaris or something that, you know, there are stories that you can write and it's nonfiction, but memoir is very personal. Mm -hmm. So how, how did you decide that you wanted to put your story out into the world? 
Yeah. So um, I, I tell the story in the memoir. I did not want to write this book. I had no interest in writing this book. You know, once I'd finally survived all the events that I describe in the book, I just wanted to move as forward as quickly as possible and just keep moving forward. But I did like to complain <laughs> about what I'd just been through. People would ask me, you know, how are you? And I'd be like, oh, my husband just left me with $1.5 million in debts. And <sighs> I, let, I, I believe in the power of complain, complaint therapy. And every single person told me, you're a writer. You need to, that's an incredible story. You need yeah. to write about that. But I still rejected it. And then I was doing a lot of spiritual work around trying to get past my anger and my fear for what my ex-husband had done to me. And in that spiritual work, I kept getting messages that I was supposed to write a book Mm -hmm. and tell my story. And finally, I was doing a reading with a medium and my late father came through holding up a copy of Eat, Pray, Love, saying, write a book like this. And I finally said, fine, I, fine, <laughs> I'll do it. And um, so I spent, I'm thinking it was about four years writing the book, workshopping it with a writer's group, okay. working with editors to cut it severely back because it was way too long when I started. But then the second part of writing a memoir is after it's published yeah. You know, that's when, that's when the fallout really happens. And, you know, you change people's names and you try to disguise the people who, you know, so that there won't be any loss, but it's still, there's a huge amount of reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my case, from my family who really, I found out after I published it, that they they just didn't like the idea of me writing the book at all. So they had four years and they didn't say anything. Well, to be honest, you know, I didn't talk to them about it, especially my two children who were young when this was going on. And what I didn't see the point of mentioning it. And I told them I was writing it, but until I actually got a contract with a publisher, I didn't make a big deal about it because you know, I didn't know that it was going to be published. Right. And so once it w- once I realized it was, I sat both my children down and I reached out to my four stepdaughters and just said, just want you to know, you know, I've written this book. I tell the truth about my relationship with your dad. All the names have been changed. You know, no one will know it's you. But there was still a lot of anger that yeah. I had written the book at all. So, um, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't quite prepared for that. Yeah, that, that would be quite, I think that's what, what maybe holds people back a lot, you know? So when you're writing the memoir, did you, did you ever think like, um, did you ever find yourself trying to like dumb it down? Maybe like, it's a big deal. 1.5 million. Like, I think a lot of us have a trouble even like encompassing that sort of stress, like, how do you Mm -hmm. pay that off? You know? So did you ever have that temptation to, I don't know, like, like make it nicer than what it was, or were you very much like, I'm telling the truth about what happened? Yeah. I, I've never been 
that person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I always believe in, you know, I, as I have aged, I have tried to become a warmer, fuzzier person, but it's still super important to me to be truthful mm-hmm. and to be authentic. Mm-hmm. And they say to write a memoir as if no one will ever read it. And that's yeah. what I did. And then I went back and I, I took some things out. There are things about my ex-husband that I learned from his first wife at his funeral that I did not put in the book. First, because I think it would be too hurtful to my children. And second, because it was really more her story. It wasn't my story to right, tell. Right. Um, and I also felt like, okay, <laughs> I, I've thought, I've been hard enough on him as it is. I don't need sure. more ammunition. Um, so it's like making that decision of telling the story and not crossing the line, maybe of being vindictive. Like, I like how you said, it's not, it's not your story. That was her story. And like really having that parameter around your memoir. I I don't think that's an easy decision to make. It's probably the correct one, but I don't think it's easy because I mean, (laughs) of what he did to you, like, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, I I mean I did try not to just be a a, a one note mm-hmm. um narrator where everything he did was wrong and I was a victim. Mm-hmm. I really tried to find the places where I made bad decisions and you know, I was so naive. You know, I just never saw it coming. He always surprised me with his newest line of attack. And so I tried to balance it out a little that way of showing that, okay, there are two people in this marriage and, you know, I think his crimes by far outweighed mine, but I still tried not to just be poor me, you know, he is the enemy and I am the Mm. antagonist. But I, you know, I think one example is my daughter I worried that I was portraying her in too harsh a light because she was a teenage girl going through this. And we all mm. know what they can be like. Yes. Um, and it w- I was never clear. Is she, does she hate me this much because of the divorce or would she have been this way anyway? Yeah. But she, you know, I worried, you know, did I portray her too much as the, the you know, the Nazi she-wolf teenage girl? Yeah, the teenager, and, yeah. Um, yeah. And my readers, you know, I've met with a lot of book clubs in particular, and they've all said, no, we saw her as sympathetic. We could see the oh, pain yeah. she was experiencing. And, you know, she was, she was using the tools she had at the time to deal with what she was dealing with. So, um, and she has, she does not ever plan to read the book. She's told me, I hope she will when she's older, maybe when she has children and she mm-hmm. can see it more from a mother's standpoint. Sure. But, you know, I did try to, to show, I, I tried to show her as a, a typical teenage girl, but also not come down too hard on her. You know, that's just yeah. one example. Yeah. 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 I, I think that's a, that is the, probably what keeps people from exploring writing memoir because of that you have to be a very sympathetic writer to all the characters 
And that doesn't mean condoning anything. Like even to your husband, you have to be able to show him in a way that it's not a caricature, you know, and yet our emotions, if we haven't really dealt with them, can can do that, <laughs> you know, like how do we explode over the dinner table of, you know, what's going on in the world or something that has happened to us? That's, you know, us not having dealt with it. And that's definitely not how you run, want to write memoir, right? So um, how did you, did you do anything throughout this? It, was it just distance, like time and cooling off or... Um, how did you get to that place where you could write this? I mean, it, it, it it's still very personal, right? It's I'm sure it's still yeah. a, a, quite the journey to write it. Well, if my notes are correct, I started writing it in 2014, which was two years after my ex-husband had died. So there was that cooling off period. And I dealt with most of the financial damage in the first eight months. And by that, I mean, I worked with attorneys, I worked with real estate agents, I sold, you know, most of that debt was real estate debt. Mm. But then after I did all that, uh, my credit report was completely trashed because there were two foreclosures and two short sales. Um, and so that was another eight years until that, yeah. that was eight years. Yeah. eight years. It stays on your record. Wow. Yeah. I think also a bankruptcy. So that only rolled off in 2020. So I still had the scars of this whole experience. I yeah. mean, it didn't affect me day to day, but it definitely affected, you know, any kind of financial transactions I wanted to do. And and that just affects you as well. Like if people don't know your story, we're pretty mm -hmm. quick to judge, right? We're pretty quick as humans to make assumptions on people. So even, even writing out, like you had said, maybe being surprised by him or whatever, you know being truthful about that, like people are going to make assumptions about you and make judgments. And did you ever consider that? Like that would probably keep me, I guess, <laughs> where I'm like, maybe I'm too concerned about what people think about me, honestly. <laughs> well, I, I mean, once you start writing the story okay. and, and just back to your um, previous question, I had notes, I had emails, I had legal sure. documents. I relied on those a lot to kind of remind me of, you know, I, had a I made a timeline. So I was able to start seeing it as the arc of the story, as opposed to just this random series of events yeah, that what happened to me. Yeah. Um, the thing that has surprised me most about readers' reactions to this book, I was not expecting at all. And it hasn't been many people, but I would say maybe three people who have given me online reviews out of all, you know, there's so many people have been so supportive of my story, but I would say about three really could not get over the good fortune I had in the early years of my marriage and the lifestyle. You know, I lived this affluent lifestyle in the Napa Valley and they just can't get past it. You know, like she's so ungrateful. She's, you know, when I was trying to have conversations with my husband about, did he have life insurance? Did he have a trust? You know, what would happen to the kids? They were like, you know, and he's dying and all she's thinking about is money. I, I was surprised how harsh people were because they, I think some people, when they see that kind of affluence, they just put you in a box and say, yeah. you're fine. You know, you have no right to complain, even though, yeah. you know, by, before the first half of the book is over, I've lost everything. Yeah, that's. 
So either they didn't finish the book or they just, you know, they got past on that one point. Yeah. Um, so that's a a tough cookie though. Cause I think, um, that, I mean, maybe, you know, like I, you know, that that could happen. Right. And this is the day of the internet and whatever, but I, I would assume that still affects you a little bit where it's just like, well, Oh, it's hard. Come on, man. <laughs> I mean, it's-, it's hard, but you talk to any author, especially authors of memoir, and they just say, move on. That's yeah. that happens to every single writer of memoir. People judge not only the book, but they judge you. It's hard. And yeah, it hurts when you read it, but then you read another one that just, you know thinks you're so much more fabulous than you think you are. You yeah, know? that's true. Could you know, I, I, honestly, I did not feel like I knew my story was, you know, abnormal to mm-hmm. an extent, but I didn't realize how dramatic it was until I started reading people's reviews and saying, I can't believe that she got through that. I can't believe she was able to forgive him. I really thought, you know, this is kind of a typical story in a lot of ways. And when you were asking me about, you know, we're just talking about the credit, when the story was happening to me, I would say, go into a department store and buy something. And the saleswoman would say, oh, can I interest you in, you know, our credit card? And I would say, don't bother, you know, I'm not going to qualify, you know, and I give her the, you know, 30 second version. And she'd say, oh, my God, the same thing happened to me. And I felt like this is kind of a universal story for a lot of divorced women that men tend to use money. A lot of men, not certainly not all men. uh, They use money to punish, to punish and reward. And it's it's not that unusual a story. It's it's honestly not. um, I think, you know. We have, you're supposed to love the person and trust them. And, and I, I just know personally, some family members where you just, you don't want to assume that they're hiding things, you know, and, mm-hmm. and even if maybe they look back years later and th- after the divorce and like, I should, I should have seen that sign. He's like, yeah, maybe except that when it's the person you live with, you sleep with, you're, you love them. You don't want to go through life thinking that they're they're screwing you over <laughs> day to day. You know, I mean, so that's hard to it's easy to look back on stuff like that, right? And and be hard on your past self. And I, I don't I'm, think most of us live like that, very suspicious of everything, you know. Right. And especially when there are two or however many children involved. Yeah. And you've got this whole em- enterprise that you've built together. And you're trying to keep the boat afloat because you don't want to blow everything up, you know, so you tend to either ignore signs or you tend to downplay them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I went through several years of trying to, you know, just trying to make it okay. Right. And I think those were my most unhappy years because I was not living my truth and um, I, I was living somebody else's fantasy life, not mine. Yeah. Yeah. And with it, it sounds like a kind of dominating personality that kind of ends up happening, right? You have your kids, your own work yourself, and you just, I mean, women get lost in yeah. the midst of it. We don't, we don't take care of ourselves. So as, as you're writing this story, 
because part of the story is you're finding forgiveness as you start go into your spirituality and you are receiving like communications from Steve after he's gone. Like, was that going to be part of the book when you started writing? Was that already happening or was, did you start writing um, before that? And it got put in later. (laughs) I started writing pretty much after the whole arc had happened. And I saw what I saw as sort of the distinctive quality of my story okay. was this paranormal side yeah. that enabled me to forgive, which, you know, as I say in the book, I had a very specific timeline for, I knew I had to forgive him eventually because we all know that if, you know, refusing to forgive someone is like, taking poison and expecting them to die kind of yeah. thing. You know, yeah. It's not healthy to hold on to that kind of anger and fear. So mm-hmm. I knew I ultimately wanted to forgive him, but I had a very specific timeline, like not until I'm made whole again financially right. and, you know, I can refinance my house or, you know, I can buy a new or whatever it was. And that was going to take eight years. I think, you know, that was, that was a really long time frame, but I did not think I could forgive him before I cleaned up all that mess. Right. Well, as it turns out, he died and um, he started sending me these really, you know, remarkable signs that were impossible to ignore. And I went to a medium a couple of times and I worked with a, a spiritual life coach and I did a lot of work on myself. And I had this very spontaneous moment of forgiveness of him that, I was not planning on, I did not want at that moment. It just happened. And many of my re- my female readers have said, uh, she's a better person than me. I could not have forgiven him. And my feeling is, you know, maybe that was a flaw of the book because I wanted to take you on that journey with me. I wanted you to understand, you know, and I don't think you can unless you've lived it. Sure. Um, but that was what kind of went into my psyche and enabled me to short circuit that whole process. Hmm. And, you know, there are a lot of people who won't buy into the whole, you know, communication with the afterlife piece. And I, I totally get that. But again, this is my true story. This is how it happened to me. And it felt very miraculous and very, it felt like a great story worthy of And I felt like that's what set my memoir apart from other horrible divorce memoirs. Well, I mean, it's amazing because you're smiling as you, as you speak to me and I, I, this is still pretty recent. Yeah. I mean, it's only been a decade. I mean, that's, well, yeah, it's been a decade. Yeah. I mean, I know I sound like a complete crackpot when I say this, but I genuinely believe that this was a project that Steve and I agreed, you know, whenever we got together and signed our, our soul contract or whatever you want to call it, that this was the message that we put, we agreed to put out in the world and we had to live it. And then I had to write it. And I believe he has totally blessed this project. I'm going to, Again, I'm sure there are many listeners who are just like, okay, good <laughs> for me. But that's what I believe. And, yeah. you know, it's so freeing to 
feel like you're on the same team again, that you did something that, you know, it also launched my writing career. This is the right. first book I've published. So it was a gift all around. It yeah. really was. I, well, I think it's even if people's first reaction might be, oh, you're you're a better person than me. I still think the the theme of forgiveness, I, I find a very interesting theme because like you said, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, you know, bitterness and just holding unforgiveness, it only rots the person holding it. Right. And, and it deeply affects you. Um, I, I have lived through that. I know about it. Um, I really believe in it. And, and I think this bringing this theme of forgiveness out into the world is really essential. Because even if in the moment people think, oh, I couldn't do that, you've put a seed in their mind of, well, somebody did. So maybe actually I could. And it's not like you say, you know, the day that he he died, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. You worked on things. Yeah. Yeah. It took me, again, the timeline is fuzzy in my mind. It did not happen overnight. Right. But it did happen in an instant um, rather than you know, over a period of financial recovery and all, you know, cause I'm, I tend to be more of a head person, you know, mm-hmm. I, I use my head rather than my heart a lot of, too many times. And, and this is not the way I normally work. I normally have a plan. I execute the plan. I complete the plan. I move on. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was not that this was a completely different experience for me. Right. And, you know, forgiveness to me, I believe forgiveness is a cousin of kindness, you know, it's, and it's not necessarily kindness to the other person. It's kindness to yourself of it's a letting go. Yeah. No, you don't forget. I still, you know, when, when I think of Steve, I still shake my head. Like, how did you, why did you, you know, I I just shake my head that he, that the human Steve Mm-hmm. was so, so flawed and so mm-hmm. self-destructive, but it doesn't weigh me down. Yeah. That, that's it important. Color my day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, reading this, I think would bring people to just the, th- even if it's the thought, could I forgive that person? Could I see them as human? Because, you know, the people who hurt us the most especially if they're not around to like, really, you know, you end up having those, those conversations in your head with them as you're washing the dishes because something's triggered you that day. You know, if you could get like, could I forgive them? I, I think that's a really important message. And this, this book does that. I think that's, that's, absolutely well, I also amazing. have to say the reverse might be true in that. I think it was easier for me to forgive Steve because he had died. If mm. he were still in my life, still hurting me, you know, financially or otherwise, um, I don't know that I could have done this. You know, I, so I, I have to be honest with your listener. If he were still alive, I don't know if that would have happened. Sure. It's a lot easier to forgive someone when they're gone and they're not doing the damage anymore. That's true. Yeah, it is. It is important to be honest, but that is true. So thank you for saying that. But I do believe too, that helping us understand in this digital age, the humanity behind people, even those who, who hurt us is, Mm. and I like how you said it's a parallel to kindness. We all want to be kind, right? That's sort of been the theme for past few years. Let's be kind with each other. 
yeah, in order to do that, you have to know how to forgive people in the little things and the really big things. <laughs> like, and I think we can learn from each other. That's why we read, right? We read each other's stories to learn how did she do it? Mm-hmm. Did I do that? Maybe one day, you know, maybe it will take other people longer time. You know, who knows? Everybody's different. But um, I think it's an important t- theme to write about for sure. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So how how have you found the like, Oh, let me ask you one thing first. You said you workshopped the memoir. Mm-hmm. How how did you find that process? Was that a, a good experience where you got feedback from people? Do you think it it was helpful or in writing memoir? Yeah, I think it's essential. I you okay. know whether it's memoir or fiction. Um, and I also workshopped my first novel, both okay. with writers groups and going to writers conferences that you know were on the workshop model. I think it's really, really essential. You find out what's working, what's Mm -hmm. not working. You get people's reactions to your characters. And it's hard, you know, especially with memoir. It's it's hard to put yourself out there. Yeah. It's a very vulnerable situation to be in. But if you're going to be sharing your story with readers, you need to have some early readers. You know, otherwise you don't know what you're up against and you will have a better book if you get those early opinions. Um, I was in a writer's group that was, it was probably six people. It was half women and half men. And one of the men was always saying, where are the sex scenes? Like, you know, you know, and in my case, kind of (laughs) that's what I felt. But he said, look, did you and your husband never have sex? And I said, of course we did. He said, you have to give us at least one scene, you know, that, that shows it was a sexually, you know, gratifying or whatever relationship. Otherwise, if you don't put it in, it seems like it's missing. And Mm -hmm. He was right. I did not want to put, you know, sex, right. especially it, it, it's me. I mean, yeah, it's something I sort of, I sort of put my fingers in my ears about, or my hands over my eyes because, you know, friends of my parents read this book, you know, colleagues read this book and um, that was mortifying to me, but I agreed. It was like, you have to show what the dynamic is, mm. this relationship. And, you know, I had one relationship after my divorce that was very much about physical chemistry. And I just, you know, you can't be shy about that. I mean, I feel like I did it tastefully. There were no body parts, but, (laughs) you know, I had to, I had to invite the reader into that world um, because that's what the relationship was. So, yeah. um, And I don't think I would have, I think I would have been in my comfort zone to not put a sex scene in if I hadn't gotten that feedback. That is true. That That's an interesting feedback just to be able to see what, otherwise the readers might see you as, you know, roommate, you know, just like that non-physical and humans are so complicated. Like you can be married, angry with the person and go to bed with them, you know, and, and making sure that that's sort of flowing. That's a good, that's good feedback from that. Yeah, especially after the marriage goes bad and there is so much animosity there, I Mm. needed to show when the marriage was good and that that we truly did start from a place of loving each other. Yeah. Um, So, you know, that that's an example that I really have remembered and in my current writing. Yeah. 
And do you think that getting it workshop, do you think that helped once it came out where you, you said some people receiving it, they, they didn't like it. Some have been anonymous and some have been family members. Do you think that helped in being able to like maybe process that or, or yeah, deal with that? Absolutely. I think if you are workshopping your, let's say your memoir, you're experiencing in the micro what you're going to experience in the macro, which is everybody is going to have a slightly different take on your book. They're going to bring their own baggage to your book. And it just helps you see early on, you know, this is my story, but, you know, writing the book is half the process. The reader brings the other half to it. That's true. And uh, workshop is a really, you know, and, and hopefully you're in a group that is supportive, Mm -hmm. but honest. And, you know, you don't come to blows, which I've <laughs> heard happening in some writers groups that it, it oh, goodness. really nasty, but I think you just have to, you know, otherwise you're not prepared to put your okay. book into the world of readers. Maybe it would be so much more nerve wracking and, and I can, I can see like, yeah, just getting that sort of, I don't know, a little bit hardened skinned, right. Cause somebody has another opinion or you're able to to talk about your book, um, because then marketing this book, did you know that it would be a lot more of like talking about the book? Cause I find authors have a hard time telling what their book is about. Yeah. <laughs> like talking about 100%. Someone just asked me last week, you know, for the elevator pitch of my book. And I, I was just humming, humming, humming. I, so I, I've done it in writing, but to do it verbally is still really tricky for me. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I don't think, I think even with all the preparation standing on the precipice of publication, especially with a memoir is friggin' terrifying. I yeah. mean, the week before when I knew I, my launch day, I knew what my launch day was. And as the days approached, I I felt like I was standing on a street corner in my bathrobe with my robe <laughs> wide open for the whole world to see. And there yeah. was no going back. I mean, right. you just have to stand there. So I think whatever you can do to prepare yourself, but you're never fully prepared. You're never <laughs> you just have to ride the train. And how has your, your process then been with you? You published with She Writes Press. Um, it's out and paperback. It's also out in audio. Did you do the audio? Yes, I did. Oh my goodness. What was that like? It was a lot of work. So okay. I knew that I wanted to do an audio book. She writes advice, you know, wait about six months, you know, and okay. then have like a second launch of your book. Okay. So that's worked out really well. Um, first you have to find the producer and the sound studio and all of that. And I had assumed that I would just hire someone because nobody likes the sound of their own voice. I just assumed I would want to hire a professional, but every single group I spoke with said, no, it's a memoir. We want it in your voice. Absolutely. That's terrifying. (laughs) Yeah, I know for writers. And, but my, um, my publicist for the audio book just sent me, I don't know, some questionnaires from NetGalley where they send advanced copies and a hundred percent of the readers liked my narration. So I think readers are very forgiving 
when it comes to memoir. They really okay. want to hear. I mean, imagine becoming narrated by someone other than Michelle Obama. You know, it yeah. just it what's the point? You want to hear her story and her voice. True. So I agreed that I would do it. I found a local studio, um, fantastic. Um, the sound engineer was also kind of a director and he would stop me when I needed to redo something, but it was four hours a day. I did it on four consecutive Sundays and it's exhausting physically, I bet. exhausting mentally. And then you have to listen to your entire book again. Oh, no. <laughs> and you have to basically proofread it you know, okay. and mark the places where, you know, I, I swallowed a vowel there or I, my S oh. went there and then they, they redo those parts. It's just, it's tedious and arduous and, and it's yourself listening to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. But all the reviews have been so positive of, of my voice. So that was a surprise. <laughs> yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. Did you have, um, because the book's already out, right? So you kind of have to sit on your hands. And as you're reading it, were there any ever any points where you're like, oh, I would have written that sentence? Oh, all the time. All <laughs> I the think time. That would be frustrating. <laughs> repeated words. And yeah, you're constantly rewriting it in your head. In your head. Mm -hmm. And I, there were a couple of places where, you know, when you're reading it, like especially reading dialogue. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you don't have dialogue tags because in the book, it's clear which line comes next. But when you're reading it, sometimes it's not clear who's speaking. So oh. in those cases, I would add, she said, or oh, yes. I, okay, I see what you're saying. you know, I have places in the book where I'm thinking things and in the book they're italicized. So you can mm -hmm. know that they're a thought, but reading it aloud, the, the listener wouldn't know that. So True. things like that, I tweaked. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you tweak that a little bit. Well, kudos to you for doing that. I yeah, I, I tried to do um long time ago, read my own book, and I just kept messing up so much that I was like, oh never mind, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And I lost my voice. I couldn't, I don't know if I just wasn't I didn't know how to do it in my well. I out. brought I brought throat spray, I brought hot tea, I oh, brought good for you. um I like sparkling water as opposed to still water. And so I right. sparkling water and I had no idea what that does. You get like a bubble in your throat. Oh, that's true. And then from drinking all the tea, I'd have to stop and use the bathroom. <laughs> I, by the second or third time, I kind of had it down, you know, but okay. it was definitely a learning process. And I will never listen to a book on audio without huge admiration for yeah. the reading it when it's done there are books I've stopped listening to because I can't stand the narrator I think I'll be a little more forgiving yeah <laughs> it's yes. hard yeah it's, it's a hard, hard thing mm -hmm. uh, so the ghost marriage is out on paperback it's now out on um is it is it on audible is it wide it's um through everyone all the retailers it's audible apple amazon um it's on pretty much everything. I know there's like a whole ton of apps that do all these things, right? Mm -hmm. um, so people can find you at kirstenmicklewaite.com. We'll have the the <clears throat> links in the show notes for sure. Where to find the book, where to find the audiobook read by Kirsten, because that's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and do you have plans with this next, with the novel that you had written? 
Are you planning to bring that up? You know, it's funny. I think I should go back and look at it and now I can't find it. I mean, I keep all my digital files. You know, I've probably had three or four computers since I wrote it and I cannot find it on my computer, but I know I have a hard copy of it somewhere in storage. So when I stumble upon it, you know, the next time I go rifling through my storage, I will look for it. But I'm I'm at work on a new novel, a historical I'm a novel. new one. Okay. All right. So now the writing bug has you mm-hmm. and it's not letting you go, huh? No, I'm I'm in. All right. So where can people um follow you as they want to um get to know more about the next novel coming out and hear more about um just about you in general? Um, I'm on most social. I'm not super active on Twitter, but I'm on Instagram at kmicklewade54. I'm on Facebook. What else? I'm on Pinterest. Um, they can just find me on social media or go to my website. All the links to my social are on my website. Awesome. Thank you. That is wonderful. I can't wait to read this book. Um, and thank you so much, Kirsten, for coming on and talking to us about memoir writing. Thank you, Kat. It's been a pleasure. You're still listening. Since you are, could you do me a favor and head over to the app that you're listening to this episode on and hit the subscribe button and then rate and review the show? It would really help the Pencils of Lipstick podcast get out into the world. And if you're enjoying the podcast, well, then there might be more people out there who would enjoy it as well. If you want to find out more about me, you can head over to catcaldwell.com. I have my story over there, my books, my interactive journals, my one-on-one coaching information, and information on my creative writing community membership group. If you're looking to write a book or you are a writer and you just want to find out more about how to write, how to publish, how to format, how to market, and all the things that go into being an author these days, check out the membership group. There is a 14 free day trial that you can try it out, get into the masterminds, find out all the goodies that we are talking about in the group. I would love to see you there.